Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello, and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. And if you want to support the podcast with your wallet, there's a donate button on anthologypod.com, and there's a link in the show notes of this episode to make a donation there. Every donation made using this donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running, and it is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you're in Indianapolis, my friends and I at The Obsessive Viewer are hosting an event on October 14th. It's the third annual Shocktober in Irvington, where we rent out the Irving Theater and screen short horror films from local filmmakers, interview them between each screening, and raffle off DVDs, Blu-rays, and uh, gift cards to local businesses for the audience. All the proceeds go right to the Irvington Historical Society and help support a great community in Indianapolis. And as a bonus for anthology listeners, you can get $1 off the price of admission by using the promo code PODCAST2 when you buy your tickets. And if you can't make it but still want to donate to the Historical Society instead of purchasing a ticket, you can do that on shocktoberinirvington.com. So having said all that, today on the podcast, I'll be discussing Execution. It's the 26th episode of the Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on April 1st, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll be sharing my thoughts on the 1979 time travel movie, Time After Time. Before I get into my review of Execution, you can, of course, also hear me discuss it with Brandon Cruz over at Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. I was lucky enough to make a guest appearance on episode 26 to review Execution with Brandon, and it was a blast. I highly recommend checking out that episode and the show as a whole. He does a really great job of talking about the episodes, and also he has a really great rapport with all of his guests. It's it's a really cool podcast, and I think I'm going to be making a guest appearance um, on it again once they do uh once he starts season two so i really can't wait for that and i'll let you guys know when uh that happens so let's let's get into my review of execution of course um i'm going to start off the review with a reading of the uh summary the plot summary of the episode and as always both the review and the summary are going to be incredibly spoiler heavy so if you haven't watched the episode please go and watch it on netflix hulu amazon prime um anywhere really (laughs) and then come back and listen to my review of it of course this 
uh, summary comes courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Secree. And it reads, In 1880, Joe Caswell is about to be hanged for shooting a man in the back. But as the noose tightens around his neck, Caswell disappears and reappears in the modern laboratory of Professor Mannion. Mannion. Uh, inventor of the time machine that has saved his neck by plucking him at random out of the past. Seeing the rope burns and surmising that Caswell is one of life's more dangerous people, Mannion attempts to send him back. The two men struggle. Caswell hits Mannion over the head with a heavy lamp and runs out onto a busy city street. Overwhelmed by the, overwhelmed by the lights and the noise, Caswell soon returns to the laboratory to seek Mannion's aid, but his blow has killed the scientist. Then, Paul Johnson, a petty thief, enters the lab. Caswell grapples with him for his gun. Johnson strangles Caswell with the draw cord of a curtain, but in looking for a hidden safe, Johnson unwittingly activates the time machine. He is sent back to 1880, appearing in the noose meant for Caswell, meeting the, and meeting the faith, fate intended for the other man. Okay, um, before I get into my review, I'm going to do a brief talent rundown for the episode, as usual. This episode stars Albert Salmi as Joe Caswell. This is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. Next, we'll see if him is in Season 3's Equality of Mercy. He was also in a two-part episode of One Step Beyond in 1960 called The Peter Herkus Story. And he also was in one episode of Night Gallery in 1972 in the segment The Waiting Room. He is perhaps, I don't know if this is his best known role, but he also played uh, Mr. Noonan in Caddyshack. Some, a little piece of trivia about him, he was a method actor and he was often cast as a bad, a bad guy or authority figure, but he also played a lot of wronged or misunderstood good guys or good natured sidekicks. So he had, uh, quite a bit of, quite a bit of range in his work and, uh, in real life he was, according to trivia or according to his biography, he was uh, very different from most of the characters that he played. Uh, he was a quiet-natured family man, and uh, um, according to this, he was an oddity by glitzy Hollywood standards. He had a good sense of humor, and uh, people appreciated his lack of pretense. And, uh, and when he was uh, semi-retired, uh, he taught classes, uh, taught drama classes in Washington, where he and his wife had settled. And unfortunately, um, tragically, on uh, April 4th, 1990, he and his wife were found shot to death um, in their home in Washington. In my research, it's it's kind of strange or it's it's not very clear, but uh, the police ruled it as a murder-suicide. It's strange and tragic and um, yeah, it's very tragic. Playing Professor Mannion is Russell Johnson who is most well-known for playing the professor on Gilligan's Island. And uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, next, we'll see if him is in season two in the episode Back There. And he also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964, titled Specimen Unknown. And uh, I just going through his biography and um, on the internet and everything, he wasn't he he claimed that he wasn't a very bright student um and actually he was held back uh one grade um but he eventually went on to be better at school and uh, 
and and uh, graduated and and was uh, part of the National Honor Society in high school. And after high school, he joined the Army Air Corps uh, during World War II and actually earned a Purple Heart when he was in a B fifty two or B twenty four Liberator. And that was shot down in the Philippines during a bombing run in uh, March of 1950, uh, 1945. And after the war, he actually used the GI Bill to enroll in acting school. Um, and that's that's how he got a start in, ha- in acting. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that uh, Albert Salmi did the same thing. He used the GI Bill to uh, pay for acting classes. And rounding out the talent for this episode, um, for, or for the uh, actors of this ep- uh, in this episode excuse me, is uh, Van Wyan as uh, P- Paul Johnson. This is his only episode of Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in two episodes of Science Fiction Theater. Both uh, both aired in 1956. Uh, the episodes were when a, Ca- when a Camera Fails and Facsimile. And he went on to appear in one episode of Night Gallery in 1971 in the segment The Doll. And... Um, I couldn't really find much information about him except that he served for 37 years as a consultant to the Los Angeles Bureau of Jewish Affairs, and he was a found uh, he was a founder of the city's uh, Yiddish Kinder Theater, and he also passed away back in January of 2015. Writer for this episode is Rod Serling. It was based on uh, an unpublished short story by George Clayton Johnson, and in adapting the story, Serling changed it in a few ways. Um, In the original story, there were two scientists who transport a killer from the past into the present, um, unbeknownst to them that he is this monster that um, is pretty much evil. Um, In the story, the man is actually ends up getting shot by police, and then once he once he's shot, he appears back in the noose. Um, so of course, Serling changed this around to have only one scientist and, and to use, um, a modern, um, criminal that mirrors Caswell in many ways to serve up the Twilight Zone style of justice. And director for this episode was David Oric McDearman. This is his first of three episodes. He'll go on to direct Russell Johnson again in season three's Back There. But before that, next we'll see from him is in Season two's A Thing About Machines. So having run down the talent for this episode, I'm going to go ahead and go into my thoughts as a first-time viewer. Um, as is always the case with this podcast, I am experiencing The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer of the show, having not seen it at all in my childhood. Um, and before going into this episode, I've, I watched it for the first time months ago, when, when I was invited on to submit it for your approval. And what I knew about the episode going in was actually nothing at all. Um, I hadn't even heard, really heard of the episode name. There are certain iconic episodes that you always know the title to, um, even if you're as willfully ignorant of the, of the Twilight Zone as I am. Such as Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, To Serve Man, Eye of the Beholder. But Execution is just a simple one-word title that um, pop culture didn't latch onto this episode as much as uh, other episodes did from my perspective. So I went in not knowing anything, and uh, that was a really fun treat because <laughs> um, I, I get, I'll go right into my review. So, so immediately, um, that was a really fun... Uh, scenario to go into me not knowing anything about the episode because I immediately thought 
Okay, hey, this is another Western episode like Mr. Denton on Doomsday. Okay, cool. I'm all set. And then when he disappears, I just, I had no idea. I like, I literally had no idea what was going on. And I should preface this by saying that time travel is one of my favorite um, plot devices. As divisive as it is, it's still something that I I love. I, I just can't get enough of. Just the possibilities for it can really breed some really interesting um, story storytelling cleverness. It can facilitate cleverness in storytelling the way a way in a way that um, not many other plot devices can. Um, sometimes that's too disastrous effect. Sometimes it's it's really really uh, unique, but. Regardless, I was very surprised, or I was very pleased that this was a surprise time travel episode. And just right off the bat, um, Caswell is just so, just pure evil. It, it's, he has no remorse. He, he looks at the father of the man he killed in the eye and says that he's, he's, he would do it again and that he, like, he's kind of taunting him a little bit. And he just comes across as really cold and hateful. And in Serling's opening narration where he says that, uh, he, he has no conscience or heart or soul or anything like that's just, that's a really, um, intense way to bring us into an episode and bring us into a protagonist. And I, I really appreciated that. However, that caused some issues going uh, into the episode that I'll get into in a little bit. But before the actual reveal of the time travel, it kind of made me think, it made me think a little bit of an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which I know in season five, I believe, was adapted for the Twilight Zone. Um, I didn't actually know that until I started uh, researching this podcast and everything, Um but I, I'm really excited to get to that episode eventually, just because I really liked uh, the short story when I read it back in high school. But anyway, it really reminded me a little bit of an occurrence in Out Creek Bridge, but only just for slight reasons. Um, and that went away pretty quickly, obviously, <laughs> as Caswell did. Um, so once Caswell is in the modern day and he meets the professor... um just referring to him as the as the professor like uh when i was on my guest spot with with brandon on submitted for your approval there was a there was a bit about um how he's the professor and i don't know so it makes me laugh every time so if i chuckle a little bit then forgive me but anyway when the professor first meets caswell i kind of feel like he it's an interesting dichotomy between the two introductions of the characters because it kind of feels like the scientist, the professor, Mannion, if you will, he, he feels like he, it feels like he kind of represents kind of scientific hope for mankind. Maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but he, it's almost this idealistic idea that he just assumed that some random person from the 1800s that he pulled into modern day, like just, it's almost idealism that he would think that, oh, they would just, they're, they'd be good. Um, uh, and you can kind of see how the plan just kind of blows up in his face because he just has no, <laughs> he, he introduces himself to Caswell as explaining that he, that Caswell is now the world's first time traveler. And 
it has this weight in this in this kind of dignity to it but we already know that caswell is this monster and just that setup alone like we like like that setup that um introduction to the episode of the world's first time traveler being a sociopath i think that that is such a great hook for an episode and i think it's i think it's brilliant i really do um the episode itself, unfortunately, it ultimately didn't quite live up to that premise for me, though. Um, and I'll get into that in a little bit because I, well, okay. So as I, as I was watching this episode, I was kind of really hoping that this would be a story about a well-meaning scientist or maybe an ambitious scientist transporting a person from the past to the present which is kind of a unique time travel um, device anyway, because it's not the constr- uh, the builder of the time machine. The scientist in the story isn't the time traveler. He's just taking um, time. He's just taking people out of time, which is a unique spin on the time travel story. But I was really hoping that this would be about him plucking, plucking a sociopath out of the 1800s into modern era and that that subject being uh just wreaking havoc on the modern age like just and maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is kind of dark but him just going on a rampage and murdering a bunch of people or or the scientists having to stop him so i was kind of hoping that that would be the kind of angle that the story played now that might be a little a little too much want for me like that I might be asking too much of this episode because it's it's a half hour episode it's only 25 minutes and I think that that premise may constitute more of a movie um or a feature length runtime um which I'll talk more about that when I get to my bonus review but um yeah I I just thought that that was something that uh, saying that the, saying that the show squandered that opportunity is a bit is a bit um, harsh, but it did make me wish for, for uh, that scenario to play itself out. Um, but having said that, there are good things about this episode. Um, the professor, when he's speaking into the recorder after Caswell's gone to sleep, it's just that his dialogue is just, it's incredibly, incredibly captivating. Um, it's punctuated by him saying, heaven help whoever gets in his way. He talks about how he may have, he's realizing that he may have, um, the phrasing he uses is that he took a 19th century primitive into a 20th century jungle. And just that, that dialogue, the way it's delivered, the kind of haunting tone, the, the, sense of foreboding that it imparts on the viewer as it's, as it's unfolding in the tone that it strikes for the rest of the episode is really, really captivating and really, it, it really grabbed my attention. I, I really thought it was great, but unfortunately that's not what the episode kind of becomes. The episode becomes about Caswell adjusting to the modern era. And I mean, that's both good and bad. I mean, it's, it it's both good and bad. So I really love the way that everything is just sensory overload for him. It starts when he wakes up and goes up to the professor and basically demands that he open the curtains to look out at the world and to see the world. And there's a moment where he opens the blinds and he's just 
overloaded with sound and sight and lights and everything. It's just, it's such, it's such a unique, a unique, um, premise for this episode, a unique way to go about this episode. While it's, it's almost like the show is replacing this idea of a maniac in the modern day wreaking havoc in the night uh, in the 20th century jungle as a professor states it and replaces it with this man out of time adjusting to the modern era and just going through this uh sensory overload thing it's it's the exact opposite of a of a sensory depri- deprivation tank essentially and he I just love that response when he sees the blinds and he, when the blinds are open and he looks outside because it's it's played almost as if his body is rejecting the present. Um, that's what I kind of took from it or that's how I interpreted it because I don't know, just something in something in the physicality of um, of uh, Albert Salmi's performance and something in the way that it's it's depicted, the way the sound is overbearing in those scenes. It just, it comes across as, it, it comes across so well and it feels so authentic. And I think that it was a really clever way to handle this part of the story. And after, I mean, after the, after the professor and Caswell have their scuffle, um, and after they, after they fight and Caswell hits him over the head with a lamp, I, first of all, first of all, I really love the way that, that fight is choreographed and shot because it like they're kind of going at it. And I love the way that that Caswell kind of throws the professor over the desk. And it's a very, it's a very well shot scene and a very well um, done scene because it feels really authentic. Um, That's more than I can say about the scene uh, at the end, but that's, I'll get to that. But, um, but once he, once he beats the professor and he's about to leave. I love that the recording starts playing again. And just there's, there's this moment in Caswell's reaction to it where he is, it's like, it's like the, it's like the professor is haunting him. And it's like he is just being taunted by this ghost in, in, a, in a sense. And I just, I love that, the way that that scene un- unfolded and how it painted the rest of, uh, not really painted the west the rest of Caswell's story, I guess, because there's really no way to co- corroborate that that was or there was no indication in the episode that he felt he was haunted. It was just there was a nice piece there where he he just looks at it with confusion and fear. Um, having said that, if I could go back just a little bit um, before the scuffle, before he kills the professor, uh, Caswell starts talking about justice with the professor and how the professor is passing judgment on him. And he is, he's telling him that he needs to go back and, and justice needs to be served. And this dialogue is integral to the episode and it's, and it's incredibly well constructed and well done. It might actually be the high point of the episode for me because the professor is explaining to Caswell that he, Caswell's killed over 20 people. He needs, he needs to pay for that. And Caswell from his perspective is saying, well, I've already died once I've gone to hell. I'm, I'm here now. I'm not going back. Um, although I, in my first couple viewings of it, I've kind of warmed up to this now, but in my first couple of viewings, and I talked about this and submitted for your approval, but 
it feels kind of disjointed the way that he explains to the professor that that the reason that that it's easy for the professor to pass judgment on Caswell or to talk about um justice from his perspective because the professor's never gone hungry he's never had to steal um he's never had to steal kill or anything in order to survive and to to eat and to sleep and 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 to just survive and that's something that i kind of wish was explored a little more but it seems a little bit at odds with everything we've seen about caswell and heard from serling in the in the narration up until that point because this is a man who has no conscience no soul no no heart no he's he's he has no remorse for the the uh, the death and pain that he's caused yet here in this moment he is um he's explaining he's explaining um his actions to a stranger um and i mean i get it yet yeah, there is there is character development there that, and that's great. I'm, I mean, I'm not averse to there being character development in a story, but it just seems kind of like up until this point, we've had this guy who's shown no remorse at all. And he's kind of explaining it that way. But then again, like I said, I got more out of this episode and more out of this scene, the third, fourth, fifth time I watched this episode because I, I just appreciated it more. And I think my hang up before uh my hang up that brought about my discussion of it on submitted for your approval i think that that was due to me still kind of being a little bit committed to the idea i had in my head of of this guy being a sociopath who was going to go on a rampage and the professor had to stop him i kind of thought that that might be sort of the case but i don't know or i think that that might have been that might have been the reason why I, uh, kind of didn't agree with this scene because when I watched, when I watched it again, it, it became one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode because I don't know, uh, some of it's in Albert Sami's performance because he brings so much energy to the character in that scene. He, he resents how comfortable the professor is and he may even kind of hate him for having this better life or this life that, that, Caswell himself could never attain, but he turns that judgment that others cast upon him into anger, at least in that scene. And that was really satisfying um, from a characterization standpoint and and in terms of Salmi's performance with it. So I'm kind of back and forth with this. I in the end I'm pretty I'm pretty committed to loving this scene and appreciating it. But from my perspective, the first couple times I saw it, I kind of had a little bit of an issue with it here and there, but I came around to it and I, I enjoy it quite a bit. So, um, jumping over the scene where he kills the professor and everything, we've get, we got this really great sequence where Caswell is wandering the streets of this noisy, busy city and he sees this phone booth. He he goes into this bar. He freaks out on the juke jukebox. It's just it's really it's really intense. Everything about it's really intense. And one thing that I I guess the scene with the bartender is is pretty pretty solid. Pretty solid. I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, the bartender kind of has to repeat a few lines, um, talking about how he's going to pay for what he's done and all that stuff. 
and I guess that goes back to, you know, the justice motif of this entire episode, but I, I like the, I like the inclusion of the television. Um, although the setup of it is just kind of hokey because Caswell just puts the, puts the gun on the, on the bar and just, and just sets it aside. It takes his hands off of it and everything. He's supposed to be this kind of criminal guy. You would think that he would, you know, be more threatening and imposing a figure and, and more dangerous. I think that's my, that's my main concern is that he should be more dangerous when he is in such an unfamiliar place and when he is so out of his element, he should be more dangerous, but he just sets it on the bar and asks, asks for a drink. So I just had small, some small hangups with that. And then, then the bartender turns on the TV because he's, his, he seems kind of, uh, confused by this man. Um, and the TV just happens to be the, a Western, uh, showdown scene, Um, and, uh, I mean, it's good. It's, it's good for, for what it is and everything. It's just, it's just terribly convenient and kind of, I don't, I don't know. The, the timing of it makes it seem just a little bit silly. Um, I kind of would have, I would have preferred if it was something, something else, something else, like, like him seeing something that would just kind of blow his mind and, and make him more confused than anything. But, I mean, I guess he already knows that he's in the present, so or he already knows that he's time traveled. So I guess that that's a moot point. So once he goes back to the office of the professor or the apartment or wherever he is, he meets the the thief, the uh, the criminal Paul Johnson. And this, I don't know. I I really like the cyclical nature of it, and I like how it's. I mean, it's clever in and of itself because you know he uh, Paul Johnson murders Caswell falls into the time machine, gets on the noose and dies in 1880. So I like the cyclical nature of it. I like the, the, uh, I think that's really clever storytelling. And I think that that's really clever the way it's all played out. But at the end, I just, I just kind of wish that there was more of a setup for him, for, for the character of Paul Johnson. And again, maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's nearly impossible to do because the, the show has such a tight, time constraint and it wouldn't be able to be organically introduced at any point in the episode. But the way it is now, it just seems a little too sudden. Like suddenly there's this new character in the closing minutes of the episode and it just seems like he's just kind of thrown in at the end to kind of wrap things up. And I don't know, it just kind of didn't really sit that well with me, but I kind of, I, I like the way that it's, that it plays out from a structural uh, standpoint, from, from story structure standpoint. Um, the fight that Paul Johnson and uh, Caswell have over, like in in the in the room, is a little. I don't know. It left a little bit for me to be. Uh, it left a little to be desired for me, because I don't know something something about the way that it's just that it's just shot and, and the way that it's acted. It just seems a little a little hokey to me, especially the way that Johnson uh, strangles Caswell. It's very quick and very. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't seem to have the weight of it. It seems more like we're just going to the end of the episode. Um, it's like they're fast tracking the story to the end. If that makes if that makes sense. But like I said, I really like the way that it turned out. I liked that the closing scene was uh, the men in 1880 looking at Paul Johnson's body, confused and wondering if they killed the right man. Um, yeah, and a couple notes about the technical aspects of it. 
is that I really, uh, I really like the, I mentioned this before, but I really like the way that noise plays such a pivotal role in this episode. And it amplifies throughout, throughout the episode at certain points. And Caswell is just overloaded with, uh, his, it's sensory overload all over the place. And I just really like the way that uh, the sound design was, was used in this episode because that's such an integral part to the story and it's integral to us understanding what Caswell is experiencing. And on the same, on the same token of that, I really like how light is used in this episode. Um, in particular, I really like the, the lighting effects that are shown when, when Caswell kills the professor and uh, I, I, I like the way that light is incorporated in this episode. Um, as far as performances, I, I just think that Albert Sami is really fantastic in, in the episode. I love the affectation he has on his voice. And like in that opening scene, that, like that kind of affectation, that kind of drawl, uh, accent that he has, it pairs with the character's complete lack of remorse in a really strong and, and, pivotal way to the introduction to uh, the character and the episode itself. So I really appreciated that about his, about his performance. And as far as Russell Johnson, I really wish that he was in more of the episode, but um, I'll take what I can get. He was really fantastic in it. He kind of, I don't know. He kind of uh, gave off a little bit of a John Wayne quality to me, um, in my opinion, maybe that's just me, but it just kind of, he had this kind of stoic presence that, um, that really worked well for the character. He, he plays the scientist part really well. Of course, that's, that's aided by some like, uh, really incredible dialogue from Serling. I like, I, I love the dialogue. Like I said, that scene with the recorder, that might actually be my favorite scene with the scene of, of the confrontation between Caswell and the professor being second, uh, playing second fiddle to that. But, um, but yeah, uh, Russell Johnson's performance, he also kind of mixes this fascination that he has with, with Caswell and, uh, and the implications for humanity, essentially, that, that he's, uh, of what he's done. He mixes that fascination with hesitation and caution really well in his scenes with Caswell. You can kind of see the professor sizing up Caswell. Um, but of course, it's, it's, uh, he's, you know, doesn't work out for him in the end. Um, as far as cultural subtext or the theme of the episode, there's, there's some stuff here. Um, I really like, I, I want to single out one small line of dialogue in the opening narration. It's when Serling says that Caswell's on his way to, uh, he refers to it as the dark eternity of all evil men. And the episode in so many words is, is about justice. It's, it's, that's pivotal to the story. It's this uh, story of a man who gets his comeuppance in the Twilight Zone. Two men, actually. Um, and it's just, it's it's a really unique twist on justice, uh, as it were. And it's kind of, it's got this kind of, I don't know if this was intentional or what, but it has this, it says some big things about what it means to um, atone for actions. Like, uh the professor is depicted as this very idealistic character and he is noble in that he wants to send back Caswell so that he can face justice. But then we have, we have the other side of the coin in that scene that I referenced earlier in the review that Caswell, from his perspective, he's 
I mean, he's, he's not, you know, he's not upset that he killed 20 people, but he, he finds his own weird justification for it. Like he says that, you know, he's hungry. He's, he's trying to survive. He has to sleep, um, sleep outside, stuff like that. And it's, I mean, it's not justifying in his, in his sense. It's just showing that the, it isn't as clear cut as the professor is making it out to be. And in that point, it's, it's kind of Caswell's most human scene because he is, you know, trying to explain his situation. Of course, he still deserves to meet justice in it, but, um, he's, <laughs> he kind of feels like he got away on a technicality, essentially. And then you get the scene at the end when the men at the necktie party, as Serling mentioned, as Serling referred to it, um, them looking on at the body of Paul Johnston in these weird clothes and saying, like, wondering if they kill the right man. And that, that scene at the end is so powerful to me. Like, like, and it resonates today. We're in an age where making a murderer was a huge hit. Um, on Netflix, on Netflix, it has the, um, you know, it, true crime, like people are outraged by injustice and, and we now have a platform with the internet to voice that outrage and, and have, um, voices be heard that wouldn't or- ordinarily be heard. And I think in this episode of the Twilight Zone, when they're making reference to wondering if they kill the right man, um, which is kind of weird cause I mean, <laughs> um, I don't know if you view that episode or if you view the the string of, of, uh, events in that episode, like these men are watching as like, must have watched, you know, this man disappear and then reappear as a different man. Um, you would think that they would question what happened rather than if they kill the right man because they had a conversation with Caswell, but that's not really the point of the entire scene in the episode because they're stay they're saying that, um, this, kind of philosophical question that did they kill the right man? And I think that's what Serling, I'm, I I wouldn't presume to know, but I feel like that's what Serling wanted us to come away from, like thinking that justice can be served in so many ways, but if it's served unjustly, that's, uh, that can be harmful to, uh, to everyone involved. But, I don't know. I may be reading into it, but, uh, that's what I, that's my takeaway from it. That's how I found, uh, a certain resonance with it. Um, being a 30 year old guy who's never seen the Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, so I, I don't really have much trivia for this episode. There's only a couple things, but, uh, first one is the background noises heard, um, in the time machine itself. Uh, they were reused later in Star Trek. And they were also used in, uh, episodes of the Twilight Zone, including Third from the Sun, including Third from the Sun and Elegy. And, uh, let's see, this, this is somewhat interesting, I, I guess. Um, this might be, uh, grasping at straws here, but, uh, the first combustion engine was invented in 1807 by Isaac de Rivas. Uh, so odds are that, Caswell may have known about cars and automobiles. Um, I think that that might be a little nitpicking or a little, like I said, grasping at straws. I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I would have to research it more, but 
I don't know. That's really all the all the trivia that I have for the episode. So I think overall execution as an episode works works well for me because it utilizes the time travel plot device and I kind of I I kind of automatically kind of latch on to stories about time travel. So I was kind of predisposed to like this. Um overall though, I mean, I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't think that it was really incredible by any stretch. Uh some things with it didn't really work with me that well, but um if I forgive those things, I, there's there's plenty plenty to latch onto and uh, such as the uh dichotomy between Caswell and the professor, how they're kind of opposing forces and how uh, the professor kind of lays out this idea that Caswell is not who he seems or, or is not who he says and, and is a danger to humans and, does, and needs to be brought to justice um, in the way that the professor is this noble character while uh, Caswell is this kind of evil villain. And also the inclusion of like him not latching and him not being able to latch on to his his want for destruction in the modern era because he is so overloaded with sights and sounds. Um, that element really is what I latched onto most is this sensory overload, um, story for Caswell. But I don't know. I kind of wish that it would have been more, more clearly drawn, like the lines between the professor and Caswell. I wish that that would have been more clearly demonstrated in that I wish that Caswell was more of a force of evil and that the professor would try to uh, chase him, I guess. But that's not the story that was told, so I can't really criticize the episode for that too much. But the episode that we did get was pretty interesting in and of itself, and I wouldn't take marks against it for anything other than some slight issues I had. So... Overall, I liked this episode and thought that it was was pretty solid, and I'm looking forward to seeing um, Albert Salmi's other uh, roles in The Twilight Zone, because I think he did a really great job. Okay, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's actually a highlight from episode 26 of Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast that I was a guest on for episode 26 to review Execution. So in lieu of a an obsessive viewer clip this week. I'm going to play a clip from that show. So Caswell now, he, he goes out into into the world. And and I, I should say a little bit earlier, you know, he opens up a curtain uh, with when the professor is still alive. And then the noise all, all of a sudden breaks into the room. Yeah. And the, and the first <laughs> thought my Chelsea, my wife had was, mm-hmm. wow, those are some soundproof curtains. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a really good point. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wow, we should get some of those. That's really that's really effective. You can find Submitted for Your Approval on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts are found, and at geekaid.com slash S-F-Y-A. It's a really great podcast. I highly recommend checking it out. Okay, so this week for my bonus review, I'll be reviewing, um, sharing my thoughts at least on... Uh, the 1979 movie Time After Time, which is about H.G. Wells chasing Jack the Ripper um, in the late 1970s. So this movie was a movie that was always kind of on my radar. Um, just because of the premise alone, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the premise of the 
of the movie in that it's a, it's about a she wells chasing Jack the Ripper through time. Like that, that, <laughs> that premise is like freaking gold to me. Uh, like I was really attracted to this, uh, uh, this, the story, but unfortunately like it left Netflix a while ago and, uh, I haven't had an excuse to really watch it. So I'm glad that I have this podcast now. So, um, so there, there were some things that I really liked about this movie. It kind of subverts the expectation that Jack the Ripper is this mysterious entity. Um, we immediately find out who Jack the Ripper is and, uh, the, the kind of setup for the entire movie isn't dependent on the mystery of Jack the Ripper, which I thought was nice. It was, it was good to keep it kind of straightforward and kind of really get into the, um, get into the storyline. So basically the way that it's set up is that Jack the Ripper steals HG Wells's time machine goes to 1979 and, uh, HG Wells follows soon after. So, we get this kind of chase feel to it. And H.G. Wells, by the way, is played by Malcolm McDowell, who does a fantastic job. Like, he is really great in this movie. So, he goes forward in time. And I really liked the special effects for this sequence. It, it reminded me a lot of 2001 A Space Odyssey, the way that it's kind of... The images are kind of, like, burned onto the film. And it's just... It's really kind of... um trippy is the word I would use to describe uh describe it but it isn't like it reminded me of 2001 but it didn't really crib it too much it didn't seem like it was um just uh, uh, uh <laughs> ripping it off essentially um because as the prog- as the scene unfolds the time travel sequence unfolds cuz he's traveling from uh, 1800s to 1979 um it speeds up the visuals speed up. There are sound bites through, through history, um, that are played in the background. So there's like, uh, JFK's, um, uh, the ask not what your country can do for you. Uh, sound bite. There's a bunch of different, uh, sound bites through history that I really thought was really, were really nice. And then throughout it, um, there's also this, this heartbeat sound effect that increases throughout it as the visuals, uh, speed up. So I, I really like the way that it's handled. And I thought that it was clever because the time machine materializes in 1979 in a museum exhibit, um, honoring HG Wells. And I just, I really liked that. I, I thought that that was just really kind of clever, a, a clever way to park the time machine without having to go through the whole, the whole thing of like, oh, there's a time machine or whatever. It's just, it's part of an exhibit. <laughs> I thought that was really clever storytelling and a really good way to work around some, uh, what could have been some script issues. And from there, there's an extended sequence of HG Wells just kind of acclimating himself to the modern era. And in some ways, this actually reminded me quite a bit of, uh, execution. But the difference here is that H.G. Wells is this um, genius <laughs> who is just taking in everything. And, and one of the things I really, really, really enjoyed about the movie is that he has this idea in his head when he builds this time machine. He, the reason he has the time machine is that he is this man who is um, before his time. He doesn't belong in the time that he lives in or he doesn't feel he does. And he views like... Uh, generations in the future, he views it as 
he has this idea that it's that it's a utopia. Yeah, he says that the, he says that the late seventies are a utopia. There's not going to be any war. Man, uh, mankind is going to be a better better thinking and forward thinking uh, species than anything else. So watching him learn about you know World War Two and um, all the different kind of less less desirable um um traits of humanity in this modern era it's just it's really fascinating to me because he has this kind of like the professor in in execution but much more pronounced he has this kind of hopeful idealism that is just kind of crushed because he realizes that humanity isn't that the future of humanity isn't what he viewed it to be um, and that kind of springs forward into some of the, uh, uh, scenes between him and Jack the Ripper. Um, Jack the Ripper, it, there's a scene of a confrontation between the two soon after they both arrive in, in the present day where Jack the Ripper says that he belongs in this time because everyone is like him. Everyone is a monster. They've, they've talked about, um, uh, some of the lesser traits of humanity. And it's, it's just really, it's a really interesting angle to play at in this, in this, uh, in this movie. And it's kind of, uh, punctuated a lot by the way that Jack the Ripper shows HG Wells, the, the television, like they, they're watching television and it's going through a quick succession of violent images. And, that alone as an idea is great, but it's also employed or employed so brilliantly in this movie because it's, it's not, it's not just showing violence. It's not just showing like news bites of war and, and atrocities and stuff. What it is, is it's like, there's, um, there's a news news, uh, piece about, hostages being killed in the middle east and then and then from there it shows violence in cartoons it shows a football game it shows war movies and then more news bites and it's like they it felt it felt like they went an extra mile to show the violence in cartoons and and the violence of football because it shows that how deeply invested in what would be what would be uh, viewed as violence uh it shows how deeply entrenched that is in our society. And I thought that was really, uh, really great. And, uh, let's see what else there's, there's, um, a subplot involving Mary Steenburgen, uh, which this was her second movie, her second acting credit actually. And she and Malcolm McDowell actually were married, uh, for a while. Um, fun fact, their son, Charlie McDowell, uh, directed a movie two years ago in 2014 called, uh, the one I love, which was really, it's a really good, really good, um, science fiction, romantic drama, uh, relationship drama movie with, uh, Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. I highly recommend checking that out, checking that out. <laughs> so there's, there's kind of this romantic subplot with Mary Steenburgen and HG Wells in this movie. And it, it's satisfying. It's, I mean, it's pretty okay. There's some things about the movie that kind of didn't really work for me in this respect. There's some weird, there's some weird editing things. Like there's a scene where Mary Steenburgen is kind of coming on to HG Wells very overtly and very, not very forcefully, 
but very like making it clear like yeah okay let's let's get down but um, but then then like in the next scene she's expl- like she mentions her husband and it's supposed like it's portrayed as like oh she's actually married and like the way it's the way maybe i'm thinking too much about it but the way that it is um depicted is that it just seems like we're supposed to be we're supposed to be unsure if she is into hg wells or not whereas she just said in the previous scene like she was you know turned on by him and wanted to um basically sleep with him and so it kind of there was some kind of anachronistic qualities to that in the editing and there are a couple other examples of that happening throughout the movie but ultimately i thought that uh there was some there was some cool chase elements to it the first kind of chase between jack the ripper and hg wells through the city was kind of hokey and silly um and took me out of the movie the first like physical confrontation between them kind of took me out of the movie it wasn't didn't seem put together that well um but then it kind of uh pays off pretty well in the end there's a really cool uh chase sequence like car chase sequence um that was satisfying to me um overall i won't give away like the what happens at the end or anything but it i mean the the ending kind of seems a little i don't know it didn't really work for me that well it kind of seemed kind of like it was just I don't know. It was kind of an easy resolution. Kind of like, well, it's kind of somewhat similar to what I said about execution. It's like, let's just wrap up this story and go home. So, um, overall I, I liked time after time. It's not like, it's not going to become one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's not going to become one of my favorite time travel movies. Um, but there were some things that I really, really liked about it. Like, I don't know if I really went into detail about this. I don't think I did, but, um, showing hg wells learning learning about the future his future uh not necessarily his future but learning about the present um and the history tied to it was really charming and and uh really well done because he is this intellectual thinker so he is <laughs> there's this there's a lot of really funny kind of uh bits here and there as he's kind of learning about the city and learning about our modern time because like he's at McDonald's and he's rubbing the, he's rubbing the table and he looks at a guy next to him and he's like, I've never seen wood like this before. And, um, he's trying to order food at McDonald's and and he's aping another person. So it's, it's interesting and it's hilarious because he is shown to be like the depiction is kind of silly, but, the underlying thing about it is that he is this genius person. So he is this intellectual thinker, but transplanting him into the modern age exposes him to kind of being kind of stupid because he's ignorant of the customs and, and everyday life things. So I, I liked that um, dichotomy in, in the first act of the movie. But um, ultimately, like I said, it's, it's a really, it's a really solid time travel movie. It's not really something that, uh, I see myself really re, uh, revisiting at, uh, in the future or anything. Um, at least not anytime soon. So yeah, it was, it was just okay. So, um, that'll about do it for this week's episode of anthology. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And, uh, again, uh, just a reminder that you can leave a, uh, leave an iTunes review on iTunes um, or just a rating. If you don't feel like um, 
writing out a review. Um, there's no like minimum character requirement for reviews. It's, you can just put one sentence in and be done and you'll be all set. And I'd really appreciate it. I love, uh, getting feedback from you. Again, you can send me emails at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and reach me on Facebook and all the usual places. Um, and having said all that, I'm still thinking about doing the Facebook group thing. Let me know if you guys are, if that's something that you guys would be interested in. And, uh, next week on the show, I'll be reviewing, um, episode 27 of the Twilight Zone titled The Big Tall Wish. And I'm not really sure what I'm going to do as a bonus review. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, if you have any suggestions for future bonus reviews, uh, let me know because I literally have no idea what the, what bonus reviews I'm going to have for the future, um, for the rest of season one. So if you have any ideas for episodes left in season one, get those to me and I will be sure to check them out, uh, as listener recommendations for bonus reviews of future episodes. And also last thought or last thing, I'm currently doing bonus review episodes of black mirror in the lead up to, um, black mirror season three premiering on Netflix on October 21st. Uh, let me know what you think about those and I'll keep pumping them out. And in the meantime, again, thank you guys for listening and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.